Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to be in the book of James today, which I have to be honest, was a bit of a shock to me. Um, Prayed and wrestled through and thought, which scripture, Lord, which scripture, which scripture? And James was the one I think was like the least likely candidate when I initially read them. I thought it's probably not going to be that one. And it ended up being James. That's all I can tell you. Um, But when I heard the opening um, hymn, uh, Kyrie Eleison, I was reading through the words going, "Uh uh-huh, God knows what he's doing. Imagine that. Holy Spirit often does that. Joel and I hadn't talked about that. We didn't coordinate, hey, this is what I'm going to preach on. Let's let's fit the songs in this direction. And Holy Spirit often does that. So I love that. So James, I don't know about you. This is one of the earliest books that I probably discovered as an early Christian. And I lived in it for a while. And it made great sense. And it was very practical and clear and uh, black and white. And I loved it. But as I got older, I began to see, and as I grew in my faith, James tends to provoke some strong opinions amongst Christians. It's kind of a love it or hate it. Luther hated it. He didn't like it was even in the canon. Uh, I think rather than comforting the afflicted, uh, James more often than not afflicts the comfortable. Uh, that's kind of what he does. He's very he's preachy. He's very didactic. He's uh, he's fiery. And he's practical. He can be very black and white. He's very direct. And he's kind of our, I think of him as like, he's our brass tax apostle. Just gets in there. Now, I think that's part of his appeal. That's why some people love him. Some people go, I, I hate him. I don't, I don't like him. Um, but I think James has often been misread. Because often what some folks take away from James is try harder, get your crap together, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Do better. I think that's a misreading. I have to say, I really do. Because underneath everything that James says, there's this deep belief in the grace of God. It's very deep, as I think we're going to see today. So we're going to be in James 2. We're going to focus on 1 to 10, 14 to 17. If you have your Bible or smartphone, pull that up. Um, Just a real brief note, James's audience. It's a little... uh, Vague. Uh, when Paul's writing to like the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, he's, he's writing to like this really specific context and body. This is a bit more of a scatter shoot. His audience is the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which is the diaspora, which means uh, a term that Jews would use to describe the exiles sort of scattered across the ancient Near East. He's putting a Christian spin on it, uh, meaning those who have now been gathered together in Christ Jesus. They're Jewish Christians, so just know that. Jewish Christians, that's the audience. Probably in Jerusalem, but we're not fully sure. But that's who he's writing to, so we need to keep that in mind. Verse 1, So my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Well, that's pretty apparent what we're going to be talking about. Favoritism and partiality. So that's the presenting problem here. Uh, and we need to keep that in view. So keep that in your minds, okay? Partiality, favoritism. Now, it's pretty amazing when you kind of plumb the language here. So partiality or to favor someone, it's actually a very uh, personal picture. It literally means to receive the face of someone, right? To receive their face. It's a very vivid, like, intimate picture. Now, the jokes for me kind of thinks, like, of an Italian grandmother, you know, like, he said, Tommy, if it's, come on in, we're going to fatten you up. You know, smack you on the cheek like from the movies. Maybe that's what receiving the face is like. Showing someone favor, right? 
partiality. So it means to show them deference or to be partial to them. In this context, what that means is to grant someone honor. Okay, so to be partial means you grant them honor. And to refuse someone to not receive their face, if you want to think about that, to slight them is to give them shame. So I hope you remember some of the previous comments I made in months past about honor and shame in the ancient Near East. Very powerful cultural currency that governed your place in society. It governed a lot. So honor and shame. So you receive someone's face, you're partial to them, you honor them. Uh, you refuse their face, you shame them, uh, you give them dishonor, you give them shame. Now, why would you typically favor one person over the other? Well, the great thing is this is universal. It's the same old reasons. We know some of these reasons. They're all human criteria. Uh, their appearance. Are they beautiful or not? Uh, what's their social class? Do they run in my crowd? Are they above me? Are they below me? Um, their race, their ethnicity, maybe sort of that social game of power and who you know, maybe that's a factor. That's why you might favor some people over another. So in other words, it's all about the externals, okay? It's all about what we see on the outside. Now, what do you think? Does God have anything to say about judging someone based on the externals? What would be your guess? Who would guess yes? That is a, that's a, I just threw you a lob, by the way. That's when you just go, yeah. Let me, I'll read you some. I refresh, I appreciate, I see one hand. I'm taking it. Uh, let me refresh your memory. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, this is when God sends Samuel to anoint a king. And he goes through all the sons, and he ends up on uh, little puny David. And God tells him this, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because kings typically were tall. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. So there's one piece. Here's Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. See? He exercise, excuse me, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That's that big theme in the Old Testament. Uh, the widow, the orphan, and the alien or sojourner. Here's another one. Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So that is a small, but I would say very consistent uh, sampling from the Old Testament that speaks against partiality, how God doesn't judge people the way that we do. Now, James is addressing, again, Jewish Christians. So they grok all this. They know that Old Testament framework. They, they get it. They get it. But is that just the Old Testament or the New? You know where I'm going with this. Guess what? The, Old Te- the New Testament speaks with the same vernacular as the Old about partiality. In the New Testament, we're told that God doesn't show favoritism. You can go to Romans 2. You can go to Ephesians 6. You can go to Colossians 3 to explore that. But I want you to hear Colossians 3, 11 in particular. Very familiar verse. You'll know this. Here there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. So James 2, 1, just one verse, is kicking things off by saying, because you are in Christ, because you're in Christ, Follow your Lord's lead. Follow the lead of Jesus. He doesn't show partiality. And reject all those human temptations to play favorites based off 
some arbitrary external worldly criteria. Okay, so we're, that seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Well and good. Uh, James is going to get more specific. He's going to keep going. Okay, but what if two different kinds of people visit your assembly? That's the language. Uh, this isn't a worship service, just to clarify. The word's wrong there. It's not ecclesia for church. It's not koinonia for fellowship. But it is some sort of general Christian gathering where the public would be welcome. Okay, so it's some sort of gathering and the public could join in. That's about all we can ascertain from the context. That's what assembly means. So two very different people show up at the assembly. And the problem is how Christians are dealing with these two different visitors who show up. Some newcomers, guess what, are favored. And some are getting the shaft, right? So the rich are favored and the poor are getting the shaft. Really famous passage from James. And while he presents this sort of like a hypothetical scenario, like, you know, what if this happened? We have every reason to think this is a live issue. That's a real problem. It's a real problem. So, you know this, but let's go through this real quickly. So the rich man, okay, comes in and outwardly appealing, well-dressed, fine gold ring, um, and he's given a seat of honor. He's granted a seat, a prominent place at the table. Again, social status. And by reading the text, you can see, excuse me, that there's some sense of turning your attention to him. You lavish your attention versus the poor person. So you're receiving his face, right? Favoritism, that's it. So this gives him or reinforces his honor, okay? Um, This reinforces that, and it reinforces the status quo. So not how God operates, right? The poor man comes in. Here's the other part of it. Outwardly, not appealing, probably doesn't smell nearly as great as the rich man, and he's got rags on, shabby clothes. So the picture James paints here is, is you talk down to him, and you tell him to stand or sit at your feet. That's actually how you treat a younger disciple. So it's very, he, you don't give him the time of day. You don't give him the time. He doesn't even get a seat. So this is big disrespect. He doesn't even get a seat. No honor. It is a shame. So you refuse his face. Again, that's how the world works. This is diametrically opposed to what God intends. Think of Jesus' parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14. Okay? Jesus gives the seats of honor to uh, the lowest of the low, if you will, as far as the world's concerned. He says this in verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So James' conclusion in verse 4 is this. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? No surprise. Uh, not going to surprise you here. Partiality is a sin. And we're given two uh, basic reasons why that is. Why it's contrary to, what, to God's design. And I'm going to spell those out a little bit. Reason number one, why partiality is a sin in this instance. It, it doesn't reflect God's heart for the poor. It doesn't reflect God's heart for the poor. Listen to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world uh, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God, this is, I mean, if you hear the Beatitudes here, you're hearing correctly. This is the stuff of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor. Uh, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's very much in that realm. God has a soft heart for the disenfranchised. 
Uh, it's often called God's preference for the poor. Jesus was poor. Uh, most of his disciples were also poor. So God has a heart for the poor. Got to qualify that a little bit or give you context, though. The poor, when you hear it in Scripture, especially here, is shorthand for those who are in deep need. And here's the important part. And they know it. <laughs> They're in deep need and they know it. They live very close to the bone. They know their level of need, right? There's no appearances. Wealth tends to insulate us from our deep need of God. And Jesus is constantly warning against the love of money, the pursuit of money. But what I need to stress here when you see the poor or the rich is we're dealing in generalizations. Um, If any of you have read through Proverbs, there's a similar sort of... uh, Um, It articulates truths in a similar way. They're generalizations. It's kind of like, hey, this is generally true about life. This is generally true. So it doesn't mean that every single poor person is heir to the kingdom of God. It It also doesn't mean that every single rich person is just out of luck. It's not what it's about. It's supposed to be a generality that speaks to the problem of rich and poor and how Christians should engage that. I hope that makes some sense. So God has a soft heart for the poor. Um, but the problem isn't just about like the seat of honor at the assembly, like who gets it and who doesn't. There's actually a lot more going on here than that. The issue of rich and poor runs just a lot deeper. Okay, here's verses six and seven. But you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich ones are not the rich ones the one who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James is painting a picture of the poor being oppressed and exploited for economic gain. So in chapter one, you can you can poke back in James and find it. He talks about the rich hauling the poor into court and doing it for money. So literally, it's an economic gain thing. So what James is talking about here is a societal problem. And he's asking the church, guys, you you must you must conduct yourselves differently. And here's the situation. Here's what it was like in ancient Near East Palestine. Okay, so you've got a very, very, very small group of wealthy landowners and merchants. And they were getting wealthier and they were getting more and more powerful. As the majority of the folks, the poor, tended to be ousted from their land and they grew poor. So there's a very wide, wide gap between these two groups. There's no middle class, which for us is hard to get. Uh, There's a massive disparity. So you have these big polarities. So they've experienced this kind of, it's tremendous injustice, tremendous. And that's what James is talking about. This is what's going on in society, not just at the church, but on a societal level. And it wants the church to be different. Now, uh, this is very validating and encouraging news for most of James' audience. Why do you think that is? Why would that be an encouragement to them? Right. Absolutely. These are folks who didn't own land, most of them. These are folks who had very few worldly possessions and tended to have that daily subsistence thing going on. Hand to mouth, that's how they lived. The majority of James' audience, they were poor, right? Probably farmers and day laborers. So this resonates with them. They know what this is talking about. They're probably, I would would imagine my blood would be getting a little boiled as as I'm hearing this, like yes, that's right James, right on. So they've experienced this sense of injustice. They resonate. Now, here's where I think it's a bit difficult for us, but I don't, I don't want to let us off the fully. It's hard because we, we have a middle class. 
Like, that's the only world I know is a world with a middle class. So this whole incredibly rich and very poor, and there's kind of not much in here, that's a bit hard for me to identify. However, by global standards, the American middle class is wealthy. So this should cause us some pause as to who we identify with as we read this passage. It's difficult because we have more in common with a rich man than the poor man. And we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with that. There's a terrible irony, uh, which James underscores in verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So, yeah, you guys are smart, but I'm going I'm I'm to spell it out for you just to kind of paint the picture. These Christians, they know that the rich oppress and dishonor the poor. They know that. And yet, when the rich show up at their gatherings, they reward them with partiality, favoritism. Guys, that's a terrible irony. I mean, that has to smack and hurt. And God, God's not happy about that. That's reason number one why he thinks it's sinful. It doesn't reflect his heart for the poor. It promotes injustice. Okay, so that's reason number one. That's reason number one why... This is sin. Uh, The second one, which is a bit shorter, and I think just kind of boils it all down. Partiality violates the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is verses 8 through 10, but I'm not going to read all those. If you, however, fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, summed up beautifully and succinctly by Jesus himself in the greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing the right thing. You're doing well, James says. But if not, if not... If not, you're just loving someone who either looks like you, who can do something for you, or kind of who belongs in your social, socioeconomic group, right? Which, of course, it's not love at all. It's partiality. And it violates the heart of the great commandment, which Jesus upholds, okay? So the second reason, it violates love of neighbor, right? Move down to verses 14 to 17. And my apologies. I meant to have that listed in the readings where we skipped over. There's kind of an excursus there from like 11 to 13. Worth reading, but this is more on point. Let me read these three verses for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of them says to you, go in peace, Uh, Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, you may kind of go, how do we get to talk about faith and works? Like, when we talking about like partiality and and what happened there? Uh, That's a fair question. Faith and works is actually the main point of our passage. Partiality and favoritism is just the presenting problem. It's the symptom of a deeper sickness, which happens to be about faith and works, which James is talking about. Now, I want to hopefully clarify this a little bit. What does James mean by works? We may hear that with a negative, a negative uh, connotation, especially if you've read a lot of Paul, because Paul tends to use it in a negative way, uh, being under the law. Uh, Trying to earn God's favor. That's what works are about with Paul. James is mentioning in a positive sense here. Acts of mercy, loving your neighbor in tangible ways. So it's not an onerous thing he's painting here. These these works, the way James speaks of them, 
are there obedient actions done out of love for God because of what he's done for you? Nothing bad about that. So part of where the confusion lies and what I hope to clarify here is that how Paul and James speak of works in the epistles. They define it similarly, if not identically, but they use it in two very different contexts. So let me just bottom line it for you. Paul most often speaks of works pre-conversion, before conversion, i.e. works cannot bring us into a relationship to God. They're filthy rags. They cannot save us. God must rescue us. Paul most often speaks of works pre-conversion, okay? It's a way to try to earn your way into God's good graces. He's saying it will not work. Nothing is enough. You are not holy. It will happen. In our passage, James is speaking about works after conversion. Once we've been saved by God, once we have true faith, our response to the grace of God is to serve him by loving others acting sacrificially as he did towards us, works a response to and a result of grace. (laughs) We do not produce grace. Works do not produce grace, grace in us. See the difference? You can't earn yourself into God's good graces, okay? James is saying, you know that. You've received the grace of God. You understand that. This is now your response out of love to God. You want to do those things, right? It's not something that gets you into his good graces. You're already in his good graces. That's works. I know that's a bit of an excursus, but I thought it was worth our time. So rubber meets the road, 15 and 16. Here's the situation. Uh, You meet a fellow Christian, they're in need. And notice they're missing necessities. They're missing food and clothing, okay? Hierarchy of needs, food and clothing. That's, That's foundational. And you have the means to help them, okay? That's the scenario. But you don't. But what you do do is you give them a pious brush off. Go in peace, be filled, be warm. That's literally like an ancient Jewish way of saying like, hey, good luck to you. (laughs) We might, the southern version of that might be, bless your heart, you know, as you kind of wave on by, walk on by, to the homeless person who needs a sandwich or a coat, right? Oh, God bless you. You just kind of keep on going. And you've got the means to help And James says this, and you can almost hear his exasperation. Like, what good is that? What good is that? To the person in need, it's useless. He or she needs clothes. They need food. So you give him or her a few words as a brush off. Your brother and your sister in this instance. Here's James doing what James does best. I think his point here is that talk is cheap. I've heard that phrase. James could have coined that, right? He really could have coined, hey man, talk is cheap. Genuine faith is more than lip service. Genuine faith is verified by good works. That's where you know someone's been met by God. That's where we get that famous phrase that almost every Christian knows. James 2.17, faith without works is what? Faith without works is dead. That's right. If you claim to have faith in Jesus, but you do not extend his sacrificial love to anyone else, James is saying your faith is false. Scripture teaches us that true faith does save. James is telling us here that someone who claims to have faith but has not the works is not saved. Faith without works is simply a a counterfeit faith, not unlike cheap grace. So James, again, talk is cheap. James could have written that. 
And he's going to spell that out later in his letter when he talks about the power of the tongue. Who remembers those chapters in James about the tongue? Do you guys remember reading that? Anybody? I see a few head nods. I'm going to take that. Yeah, he talks about uh, the tongue. It's like the rudder of a ship, this small thing that guides this massive vessel. It's uh, like a destructive, difficult to tame wildfire. That's the tongue. Talk is cheap. So he's going to build on that. He's, built, he's introducing another thing that he's going to take home. Faith without works is dead. True faith has, it has real arms and it has real legs and it has hands and it has feet that reach out and offer someone a cool cup of water or a warm coat or a hot meal in Jesus' name or the seat of honor at the table, whatever that happens to be. A true faith is a lived faith. I mean, it's pretty simple. We know this, but people know that you mean what you say when your actions match your words. They know, oh, you're, you're, you're for real. You really mean this. We know this. Words are very easy to come by. They're very easy to come by. But putting skin in the game, it's just a lot harder. It requires sacrifice. That's what the love of God is all about, right? Loving others uh, sacrificially within the church and outside the church. And the cross shows us as much because the God of the universe loves us. And what he did, those actions, match up perfectly with every single thing Jesus said. Words and actions. A true faith is a lived faith. Close here. Uh, And this is kind of hard to believe because so much has happened. I mean, COVID has been a blur. And it's not like things were super awesome before that. It's been an intense two years and then some. But over a year ago, uh, the Lord called us to replant here in East Charlotte. Um, and I just, you've heard me say this before, and the vestibule will, will agree with this. It's, it wasn't our idea. We didn't dream that up. We didn't go, you know what, that's the one place we haven't looked. Let's do that. That was just the Lord. <laughs> Uh, Our new home, as you look around, you drive around, it's a place of far greater racial diversity, right? It's a very different socioeconomic landscape. Uh, To say it's sort of a different vibe than South Park, (laughs) yeah, it's a different vibe than South Park. Uh, Affluent and, and, and largely white South Park. It's a different place. We have a new home, and it's different. You can easily find people living below the poverty line within a mile of here. No problem. Easy. Uh, We've had homeless visitors in our service. Howard, you know, he showed up for what? I don't know, three or four Sundays? And he comes, you know, straight down the aisle. We're like, whoa, hold on, Howard, hold on. Uh, New realities in being here. Uh, New things to consider. Our new neighborhood. Uh, And I mean that kind of in in a general sense. It might make you uncomfortable, right? It might make you feel like, Hi, man, I'm outside my comfort zone. This is not what I'm used to. You're not alone. A hundred bucks. There's somebody else, several other people that feel the same way. Now, we've only been here for two months. So part of me would say, that's to be expected, okay? I think that's, that's to be expected. Setting down roots, like making a new home in place, takes time. But there's no doubt it's been very difficult and pretty clunky thus far. 
Nobody's, we're not going to, you know, you can put a lipstick on a pig, but still a pig, right? We're not going to try to glorify that. It's been a rough go. And I have to be honest, I have more questions than answers about our new home at this point. I'm just like, all right, Lord, what do you want of us? What do you, who do you want us to be? So let me give you some examples. Again, I have more questions than answers about our new home. Let me give you some examples. Here's some of the questions and ruminations that end up in my prayers, kind of populating my mind. Okay, Lord. Uh, and they're, some are just really simple. Maybe you resonate with this. Like, okay, Lord, how will, how will Camp Kings live out your mission and word and deed here? Kind of given our current situation, sharing space. How, how are we going to do that? How do we... And, I think you'll understand this. How do we be a church here? How do we, Lord, how do we do that? Lord, are we going to be more than like the part-time Sunday-only church? Like, are we going to be more than that? I think that's the call. Those are some of the questions that go in my brain. Now, I'm 100% sure you have your own questions. <clears throat> you've got your own ruminations. And I bet you've got your own wonderings. I bet you've got some convictions that go along with them, right? I think so. So here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a plug, but I think it's important. Family meeting on September 26, our normal time, 4.30, we're going to feed you. That is going to be the right place to bring those sorts of questions, ruminations, wonderings, convictions, and, huh, Lord, what are you up to? What's going on? We're going to wonder about those things together. We're going to bring those things before the Lord together, and we're going to listen together, right? We're going to take counsel together. We're going to seek his voice. Lord, what does live faith look like here in East Charlotte? Like, Lord, what would you have us do? Who would you have us be? And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to show us and open our hands and go, what would you have of us, Lord? What would you have of us? So, that went from sermon to plug. That's okay. I think it's relevant. Um, and I'll talk about that a little more during announcements. What does live faith look like for us in this new chapter? Let's pray.